the teacher, a hooker and the preacher, riding on a midnight bus bound for Mexico. One was heading for vacation, and one for higher education, and two of them were searching for lost souls. Well, that driver never ever saw that stop sign, and them 18-wheelers can't stop on a dime. Now there's Three wooden crosses on the right side of the highway. Why there's not four of them, heaven only knows. You see, it's not what you take when you leave this world behind you. It's what you leave behind you when you go. Well, that farmer left a harvest, a home in 80 acres, a faith and love for grown things in his young son's heart. And that teacher left her wisdom in the minds of lots of children. She did her best to give them all the better stars. Then that preacher whispered, can't you see the promised land? As he laid his blood-stained Bible in that hooker's hand. There are three wooden crosses on the right side of the highway. Why, there's not for them, heaven only knows. You see, it's not what you take when you leave this world behind you. It's what you leave behind you when you go. Well, that's the story that our preacher told last Sabbath. And he held that blood-stained Bible up. For all of us to see, he said, bless the farmer and the teacher and the preacher. Who gave this Bible to my mama? Who read it to me? There are three wooden crosses on the right side of the highway. Why there's not four of them? Yes, now we know. You see, it's not what you take when you leave this world behind you. It's what you leave behind you when you go. It's what you leave behind you when you go. God had bidden Elijah appoint another to be prophet in his stead. Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. He had said, and in obedience to the command, Elijah went to find Elisha. As he journeyed northward, how changed was the scene from what it had been only a short while before. Then the ground was parched, the farming districts unworked, for neither dew nor rain had fallen for three and a half years. Now on every hand, vegetation was springing up as if to redeem the time of drought and famine. Elisha's father was a wealthy farmer, a man whose household were among the number that in the time of almost universal apostasy had not bowed the knee to Baal. Theirs was a home where God was honored and where allegiance to the faith of ancient Israel was the rule of daily life. In such surroundings, the early years of Elisha were passed in the quietude of country life under the teaching of God and nature and the discipline of useful work. He received the training in habits of simplicity and of obedience to his parents and to God that helped to fit him 
for the high position he was afterward to occupy. The prophetic call came to Elisha while, with his father's servants, he was plowing in the field. He had taken up the work that lay nearest. He possessed both the capabilities of a leader among men and the meekness of one who is ready to serve. Of a quiet and gentle spirit, he was nevertheless energetic and steadfast. Integrity, fidelity, and the love and fear of God were his. And in the humble round of daily toil, he gained strength of purpose and nobleness of character, constantly increasing in grace and knowledge. While cooperating with his father in the home life duties, he was learning to cooperate with God. By faithfulness in little things, Elisha was preparing for weightier trusts. Day by day, through practical experience, he gained a fitness for a broader, higher work. He learned to serve, and in learning this, he learned also how to instruct and lead. The lesson is for all. None can know what God may be God's purpose in his discipline, but all may be certain that faithfulness in little things is the evidence fitness for a greater responsibilities. Every act of life is a revelation of character, and he only who in small duties proves himself a workman that needeth not be ashamed can be honored by God with higher service. He who feels that it is of no consequence how he performs the smaller task proves himself unfit for a more honored position. He may think himself fully competent to take up the higher duties, but God looks deeper than the service. After test and trial, there is written against him the sentence, Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. His unfaithfulness reacts upon himself. He fails of gaining the grace, the power, the force of character which is received through unreserved surrender. Because they are not connected with some directly religious work, many feel that their lives are useless, that they are doing nothing for the advancement of God's kingdom. If they could do some great thing, how gladly they would undertake it. But because they can only serve in little things, they think themselves justified in doing Nothing. In this they err. A man may be in the active service of God while engaged in the ordinary everyday duties, while felling trees, clearing the ground, or following the plow. The mother who trains her children for Christ is as truly working for God as the minister in the pulpit. Many long for special talent with which to do a wonderful work. While the duties lying close at hand, the performance of which would make the life fragrant, are lost sight of. Let such ones take up the duties lying directly in their pathway. Success depends not so much on talent as on energy and willingness. It is not the, pos- posse- it is not the possession of splendid talents that enables us to render acceptable service but the conscientious performance of the daily duties, the contented spirit, the unaffected, sincere interest in the welfare of others, in the humblest of true excellence may may be found. The commonest tasks wrought with loving faithfulness are beautiful in God's sight. As Elijah Divinely directed in seeking a successor, past the field in which Elisha was plowing, he cast upon the young man's shoulders the mantle of consecration. During the famine, the family of Shaphat had become familiar with the work and mission of Elijah, and now the Spirit of God impressed Elisha's heart as to the meaning of the prophet's act. To him, it was the signal that God had called him 
to be the successor of Elijah. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow thee. Go back again, was Elijah's answer. What have I done to thee? This was not a repulse, but a test of faith. Elisha must count the cost, decide for himself to accept or reject the call. If his desires clung to his home and its advantages, he was at liberty to remain there. But Elisha understood the meaning of the call. He knew it was from God, and he did not hesitate to obey. Not for any worldly advantage would he forego the opportunity of becoming God's messenger or sacrifice the privilege of association with his servant. He took a yoke of oxen, slew them, boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, and gave unto the people, and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Without hesitation, he left a home where he was beloved to attend the prophet in his uncertain life. Had Elisha asked Elijah what was expected of him, what would be his work? He would have been answered, God knows. He will make it known to you. If you wait upon the Lord, he will answer your every question. You may come with me if you have evidence that God has called you. Know for yourself that God stands back of me and that it is his voice you hear. If you can count everything but dross, that you may win the favor of God, come. Similar to the call that came from Elisha was the answer given by Christ to the young ruler who asked him the question, What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? If thou wilt be perfect, Christ replied, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Elisha accepted the call to service, casting no backward glance at the pleasures and comforts he was leaving. The, the young ruler, when he heard the Savior's words, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He was not willing to make the sacrifice. For his love for his possessions was greater than his love for God. By his refusal to renounce all for Christ, he proved himself unworthy a place in the master's service. The call to, to place all on the altar of service comes to each one. We are not all asked to serve as Elisha served, nor are we all bidden to sell everything we have. But God asks us to give his service the first place in our lives. To allow no day to pass without doing something to advance his work in the earth. He does not expect from all the same kind of service. One may be called to ministry in a foreign land. Another may be asked to give of his means for the support of the gospel work. God accepts the offering of each. It is the consecration of the life and all its interests that is necessary. Those who take this make this consecration will hear and obey the call of heaven. To everyone who becomes a partaker of his grace, the Lord appoints a work for others. Individually, we are to stand in our lot saying, Here am I, send me. Whether a man be a minister of the word or a physician, whether he be merchant or farmer, professional man or mechanic, the responsibility rests upon him. It is his work to reveal to others the gospel of their salvation. Every enterprise in which he engages should be a means to this end. It was no great work that was at first required of Elisha. Commonplace duties still constituted his discipline. He is spoken of as pouring water on the hands of Elijah, his master. He was willing to do anything that the Lord directed, and at every step 
he learned lessons of humility and service. As the prophet's personal attendant, he continued to prove faithful in little things, while with daily strengthening purpose, he devoted himself to the mission appointed him by God. Elijah's life after uniting with Elijah was not without temptations. Trials he had in abundance, but in every emergency, he relied on God. He was tempted to think of the home that he had left, but to this temptation he gave no heed. Having put his hand to the plow, he was resolved not to turn back. And through test and trial, he proved true to his trust. Ministry comprehends far more than preaching the word. It means training young men as Elijah trained Elisha. Taking them from their ordinary duties and giving them responsibilities to bear in God's work. Small responsibilities at first and larger ones as they gain strength and experience. There are in the ministry men of faith and prayer, men who can say, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. That which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you. Young inexperienced workers should be trained by actual labor in connection with these experienced servants of God. Thus they will learn how to bear burdens. Those who undertake this training of young workers are doing noble service. The Lord himself cooperates with their efforts. The young men to whom the word of consecration has been spoken, whose privilege it is to be brought into close association with earnest, godly workers should make the most of their opportunity. God has honored them by choosing them for his service and by placing them where they can gain greater fitness for it. They should be humble, faithful, obedient, and willing to sacrifice. If they submit to God's discipline, carrying out his directions and choosing his servants, as their counselors, they will develop into righteous, high-principled, steadfast men whom God can entrust with responsibilities. As the gospel is proclaimed in its purity, men will be called from the plow and from the common commercial business vocations that largely occupy the mind and will be educated in connection with men of experience. As they learn to labor effectively, they will proclaim the truth with power. Through most wonderful workings of divine providence, mountains of difficulty will be moved and cast into the sea. The message that means so much to the dwellers upon the earth will be heard and understood. Men will know what the truth is. Onward and still onward, the work will advance while the whole earth shall have been warned, and then the end shall come. For several years after Elisha and Elijah labored together, the younger man daily gaining greater preparedness for his work. Elijah had been God's instrument for the overthrow of gigantic evils. The idolatry supported by Ahab and the heathen Jezebel had seduced the nation had been given a decided check. Baal's prophets had been slain. The whole people of Israel had been deeply stirred, and many were returning to the worship of God. As Elijah's successor, Elisha, by careful, patient instruction, must endeavor to guide Israel in safe paths. His association with Elijah, the greatest prophet since the days of Moses, prepared him for the work that he was soon to take up alone. During the years of united ministry, Elijah from time to time was called upon to meet flagrant evils with stern rebuke. When wicked Ahab seed Naboth's vineyard, 
It was the voice of Elijah that prophesied his doom and the doom of all his house. And when Ahaziah, after the death of his father Ahab, turned from the living God to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, it was Elijah's voice that was once more heard in earnest protest. The schools of the prophets established by Samuel had fallen into decay during the years of Israel's apostasy. Elijah reestablished these schools, making provisions for young men to gain an education that would lead them to magnify the law and make it honorable. Three of these schools, one at Gilgal, one at Bethel, and one at Jericho, are mentioned in the record. Just before Elijah was taken to heaven, he and Elisha visited these centers of training. The lessons that the prophet of God had given them on former visits, he now repeated. Especially did he instruct them concerning their high privilege of loyally maintaining their allegiance to the God of heaven. He also impressed upon their minds the importance of letting simplicity mark every feature of their education. Only in this way could they receive the mold of heaven and go forth to work in the ways of the Lord. The heart of Elijah was cheered as he saw what was being accomplished by means of these schools. The work of reformation was not complete, but he could see throughout the kingdom a verification of the word of the Lord. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed to Baal. As Elisha accompanied the prophet on his round of service from school to school, his faith and resolution were once more tested. At Gilgal, again at Bethel, and at Jericho, he was invited by the prophet to turn back. Tarry here, I pray thee, Elijah said, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. But in his early labor of guiding the plow, Elisha had learned not to fail or become discouraged. And now that he had set his hand to the plow in another line of duty, he would not be diverted from his purpose. He would not be parted from his master. So long as the opportunity remained for gaining a further fitting up for service. Unknown to Elijah, the revelation that he was to be translated had been made known to his disciples at the schools of the prophets, and in particular to Elisha. And now the tried servant of the man of God kept close beside him. As often as the invitation to turn back was given, his answer was, As the Lord liveth, and thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on, and they too stood by Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters. And they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. And it came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, What shall I do for thee before I be taken away from thee? Elisha asked not for worldly honor or for a high place among the great men of earth. That which he craved was a large measure of the spirit that God had bestowed so freely upon the one about to be honored with translation. He knew that nothing but the spirit which had rested upon Elijah could fit him to fill the place in Israel to which God had called him. And so he asked, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit come upon me. In response to this request, Elijah asked, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. Now this next part, I've pondered in my mind for quite a while. Picture Elijah and Elisha walking along and talking. 
And all of a sudden, they hear a roll of thunder come tearing up behind them, and they turn around just in time to see two fiery steeds pulling a chariot of fire a-coming for to carry Elijah home. And the chariot pulls up in between them, and Elisha is standing back, shielding his eyes from the brightness and his face from the heat from the chariot of fire. And he sees Elijah step up to it. And he looks upon his face. And he sees the proud smile of a proud father for his son. And Elijah calls out to Elisha, Well done, my son. Now go and show yourself to be God's man. And with a thumbs up and a proud smile on his face, Elijah steps into the chariot. And like a shot, they take off. Within a few strides, those fiery steeds have that chariot picking up speed and elevation as they fly down the valley. And as they come near the mountains at the end of the valley, that celestial chariot driver pulls back on those reins and those fiery steeds do a 180 inverted loop and they come screaming back towards Elisha. And just before they fly over Elisha, that chariot driver does a victory roll and then he pulls back on the reins and they blast off towards heaven. And Elijah is standing there watching this all happen. And he remembers Joshua. This is what it must have felt like when the Lord called Joshua to fulfill the sandals of Moses. And then he repeated to himself the words of the Lord to Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, even as far as the great river the Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you All the days of your life, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth and you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Boom! And the chariot is gone from this earth. Elisha looks down where just a moment before He watched Elijah step into the chariot. Now all that remains are the smoking sand turned to glass by the hooves and the wheels of the chariot of fire. Elijah follows the prince down through the sand and then the contrail from the chariot as it goes down the valley, through the loop, the victory roll, and the blast off to heaven. And as he's following it up as far as he can see, He's just about to turn and go 
when something way up in the sky catches his eye. Is that an eagle? Doesn't fly like an eagle. Looks more like a flag fluttering in the breeze. And now his attention is captured, and he watches it. And as it comes closer, he realizes what it is. And he holds out his arm to receive the mantle, the prophet's mantle from Elijah. And now, with incredible confidence, he turns and goes once more back to the Jordan. And as he stands on the banks of the Jordan, he folds the mantle just as he had seen Elijah do. And he smote the water. And the Lord, once more, as he had done for his servant Moses and Joshua and Elijah, parts the water for his servant Elisha. And Elisha crosses over. When the Lord in his providence sees fit to remove from his work those to whom he has given wisdom, he helps and strengthens their successors if they will look to him for aid and will walk in his ways, they may be even wiser than their predecessors, for they may profit by their experience and learn from their mistakes. Henceforth, Elisha stood in Elijah's place. He who had been faithful in that which was least was to prove himself faithful also in much. This Marshfield Seventh-day Adventist Church is richly blessed with faithful, godly leaders. This last fall, as I sat at church board, I had an epiphany. It dawned on me that the passing of the mantle is coming all too, too soon. And as I looked around the table, I realized there are only two on church board who are much younger than I am. And I began to wonder, who's going to fill their shoes? Who's going to stand that tall? Who's going to radiate the love and role model the character of Jesus that will inspire and guide this next generation into a loving relationship with their Savior. Oh, you Elishas, where are you? Step into the water, the water. Wait out a little bit, a deeper. little bit deeper. Wet your feet in the water of His love. Oh, step into the water, the water. Wait out a little bit, a little deeper. bit deeper. Come join angels singing praises to the Lamb of God. It's time we, the people, stand up for what is right. It's time we squared our shoulders back and raise our swords to fight. For the Bible is my weapon and the Spirit is my shield. The church needs more of its members to be workers in the field. Step into the water, wait out a little bit deep. A little deeper. Wet your feet in the water of His love. Step Christian who walks the narrow way. There has been a prize appointed for the soul who does not stray. Oh, I want to live for Jesus and be all that I should be so that I can rest with Him forever, live eternally. Join 
to the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you once again this Sabbath morning, we do so asking that you will use us in the finishing of your work. Help us to be the ones that are ready, willing, and able to go forward from here proclaiming your message to the world. And then at last, may each one, as I had mentioned in our prayer earlier, may each one of us be counted among those that are saved. For this would be our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever thought about what Jesus left behind? This is just a couple of things that I thought of. He left a harvest, and he left a request for harvesters to safely bring that harvest into the storehouse. He left his flock in the hands of 11 hand-picked, hand-trained shepherds to protect, care for, to feed, and to guide them beside still waters. And then, upon the Mount of Olives, just before he departed for heaven, he left three last things. The first was a command. Go, the implied subject is you and me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If that isn't challenging you enough, the second command, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And when I look into the mirror of the soul, I bow my head in shame and wonder how can I do that? But that's why he saved the best for last. His promise. The same promise that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To Joseph and Moses and Joshua. To Elijah, Elisha, and the eleven on the Mount of Olives. And to all who will love, honor, trust, and obey. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So now the question begs to be asked, what will you leave behind? I never knew my grandma and grandpa Stargardt. They passed away before I was born. Grandpa Fred's parents, Carl and Marie, left Nienhausen, Germany in the spring of 1885 with their five children to come to the New World. July 8th, they signed the registry at Staten Island. They came like most immigrants with a hope and a prayer of a better life and more possibilities and safety for their family. When they came, they weren't wealthy. They could only afford to bring the very essentials that they would need to survive and to thrive in the new world. Space was limited. What they, what they could afford to bring was packed into a few small trunks similar to this one. I imagine they had some clothes, maybe a little emergency food, some basic kitchen utensils, maybe a few tools. All they could have was the bare essentials to survive and thrive. Of what they brought... Only one item, to the best of our knowledge, remains. It was passed from Grandpa Carl to my Grandpa Fred. It now resides with me. It's written in German. It says, Ich und mein Haus wollen 
dem Herren dienen. Let me translate for you. Me and my house want to serve the Lord. I know that's what grandma and grandpa believes. I have irrefutable evidence in who they left behind. My mama and her sisters. My aunties. And the incredible agape love that they showered upon us. As for what I will leave behind, by the grace of God, I will follow in the footsteps of my loved ones before me. Ekund, mein Haus, wollen den Herren dienen. And the lives we live inspire them to 
I've asked Walter to invoke the Lord's blessing on us this morning. Walter has served as an elder in this church for many years. And for over 50 years, he's been our church treasurer. Thank you for your example, Walter. You asked me to read from Numbers 6, 22 through 27. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. John has an announcement for our nominee. Okay, we thank each of you for filling out your uh, form and handing it in. Our nominating committee that has been uh, selected for next year, or this year, will be Joy Burrell, Bob Gauger, Bobby Zenner, John Stevens, Carl Gale, with alternates of Dagny Burke and John or Cindy Damon. We can't have couples on there, and they both had the same number of votes, so they'll have to fight this out. I'm not even going to be a go-between on that deal. Uh, But anyway, I'll read that again, and then if we could meet up front here uh, just immediately would be great. Joy Burrell, Bob Gauger, Bobby Zinner, John Stevens, Carl Gale, with alternates of Dagny Burke and John or Cindy, and you can both come to the meeting. (laughs) John or Cindy Damon. Thank you. Why don't, you come, why don't you come down and greet with us? Why don't you come down and greet at the door with us? Jesus, 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 there's just something about Because I 